episode 48 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be looking at Happy Beginnings versus Sad Beginnings, and two novels by Emily Eden called The Semi-Attached Couple and The Semi-Detached House. And if I get that yeah. right every time, <laughs> <laughs> then I'll consider myself a success. Um, before we get on the, on the rest of the show, um, I just wanted to highlight, this is episode 48, as I said, episode 50, which should be early next year, we'll be doing a Q&A episode um, we will provide the answers, but we do need some questions. <laughs> so yes. any time between now and then, um, if you could email simonthomasoxford at gmail.com with any questions you have for us. That can be about recording the podcast. It can be about our reading habits. It can be about our personal lives, <laughs> but not too personal. <laughs> um, it can be about anything you like, and, you know, we may not answer them if we don't want to. <laughs> but... <laughs> but um, we really do need questions. Otherwise, it's just us sitting in silence and putting out a blank episode and nobody wants that. Yes. Yes, thank you very much in advance. Um, and I'll remind you in episode 49 as well. Uh, but before we get on with anything else, Rachel, um, I'm going to ask how are you and what you're reading. I should say to the listeners, we're just re-recording all of this section <laughs> <laughs> because I, the Skype recorder I used wasn't working. Thankfully, I noticed before we had done, you know, an hour's show. But, but Rachel, <laughs> as though I didn't know already, oh. <laughs> tell me about your life. What are you up to? Well, Simon, I'm very busy at the moment <laughs> at work. I'm currently working on um, a Christmas carol, a Christmas production, um, which is very exciting, which sadly we're going to do in January. So um, <laughs> it's going to be Christmas after Christmas, but we're nice. enjoying that. Um, and I, as I was saying, I went to Lindley Sanborn House this weekend, which is the house, the Victorian house of the, um, punch cartoonist of the 19th century, which has been left exactly as it was when him and his wife were alive. And interestingly, which I didn't know, uh, Viscount Lindley, who is the, was the husband of Princess Margaret, was his great grandfather and was one of, a great grandson and was one of the people that ensured that the house stayed open. Oh, which part of okay. London is that in? So it's in, it's kind of just off Kensington High Street. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So it was really interesting to go there. I mean, I've been before, but it was lovely to go back. It's one of those things where there's just so much stuff in every room. It's kind of a bit too much to take in. <laughs> Classic Victorian. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it's well worth a visit and a, and a wonder. Um, and that's, that's about it really. I'm reading at the moment The Woman in White. Um, ah. by Collins, which I is a reread, I, but I can't actually remember when I read it last. I must have been at university, so a decade ago. Gasp. <laughs> um, and I, I absolutely cannot put it down. It's so good. I mean, I, I know I kind of remembered most of what was happening, but I didn't remember how it happened. So um, I'm just absolutely loving every page. And you will be, yes, spoilers for later in the episode, we'll be yeah. doing it in the next episode because I bought it in my first year of university and have never read it. So um, so I'm quite excited about finally being persuaded to read a you know zillion page book. You're going to love it, Simon. I hope so. Um, and cool. what about you? What have you been up to? Well, I had a bit of a busy weekend in London that sadly you could not join in with, <laughs> as you had originally no. hoped. Um, but I went on a bookshop tour um, around... I guess, Charing Cross Road and Environs, um, which was organised by a company called Blue Stocking Books, and that was good fun. Um, I bought two of my Project 24 books. I've got one left for the year. Simon. I know, it's been a bit of a sort of avalanche of them with Canada and with this, but um, I'm sure I can go the, what is it, five weeks? Five weeks. 
Yeah. He says, shaking slightly. And you'll, <laughs> uh, get, you'll get books for Christmas, won't you? Yes, exactly. And in fact, I got quite a few for my birthday as well, so I really don't need any more right now. But <laughs> <laughs> I also have to decide... I've got room for maybe about another 20 or 30 books in my flat, so I need to decide whether I can try and squeeze in some more shelves somewhere or if I'm going to have to start doing a one-in-one-out policy. Always um, tricky. Um, but at the moment, I'm reading Men and Wives by Ivy Compton Burnett. Um, oh. I just started. I have <laughs> managed to persuade my book group to read Ivy Compton Burnett in January. Wow. Um, I know. I can only imagine that they're going to hate me. <laughs> <laughs> But we just did The Uncommon Reader by um, Alan Bennett. And that, so uh, a a novel about the Queen becoming addicted to reading, which is very funny and lovely. But the first author she reads is Ivy Conta Bennett. So um, it seemed like a good follow-on. If I was ever going to persuade them to do it, now is the time. You seized your chance. I did, I did. And they seem seem quite keen, poor fools. (laughs) They do not know what comes to them. Yeah. Um, So far, to be honest, it's not one of her best. I picked it because it had the cheapest second-hand copies available on Amazon. um, So I'm going to spend... I mean, hopefully it'll pick up. Otherwise, I'm going to spend the whole time saying, she's still great. Read more. It's not her best. It's not her best. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know she had best and not best, because I thought they were all the same, but, you know. Maybe, maybe I'm just not in quite the right mood for it. Mm. No. But I do also have a Victorian on the go in that I started listening to the audiobook of uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Oh. Yeah. Um, now that I'm commuting, it seems like a good time to try and get into audiobooks. Yeah. Um, and how, how are you liking it so far? Well, it's a really good reader. It's Martin Jarvis, who, who I love. Um, and... You know, some technical issues aside, it keeps repeating chapters, which is a bit annoying as I tried to like skip <laughs> forward whilst driving. <laughs> um, but yes, no, I'm enjoying it. I think he brings out the humour quite well. I'm always, I realised, or I remembered rather, after I started that I don't really like listening to comic writing read to me because I want to be able to do the comic timing in my head as I want it to be done. <laughs> but, um, usually it works. And the only problem is his scenes are so, you know, long and involved and he'll spend, pages just talking about one detail in sort of far, yeah. in like amusing detail is that that can be 20 minutes of driving and then <laughs> by the time another character comes back or something I'm, I've got to work <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah no I, I think it's a good way to to do it because I don't often pick up books that, that long so sort of forcing me to do it that's good yeah um, let's turn to our topic, which was suggested by my friend Kirsty, in fact. Um, so we did happy endings versus sad endings quite a while ago, um, and is, you know, a more traditional, <laughs> um, pairing. But she suggested happy beginnings versus sad beginnings, which is, um, yeah, possibly up to, to debate what that would even mean. But, um, what are your thoughts initially? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I don't actually think that. I'm just trying to think of, of, I can't think of any books that have sort of, well, actually, yeah, I feel like a lot of books open with more kind of neutral openings. Okay. But, um, yeah, I feel like often I don't, I mean, I've, I can't think of any books that have got, I've read that have had desperately sad openings. Because even if someone, you open the book and the person's dead, um, you don't know them to care about them yet, if you see what I mean. Okay. Um, 
But um, I'm just trying to think of my favourite books and how they open. So I, I feel that, like... Sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead. No, I doesn't say that. Sort of, it depends whether it's a happy ending for the reader or for the characters, doesn't it? Because yeah. if it's... A, I've thought of quite a few books that open with deaths, but as you, and, and I'd put them in my sad beginnings. But as you say, for the reader, we probably don't really care. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I always think of things like um, Jane Austen novels. They always have happy openings and and they tend to be um well maybe apart from persuasion but sensibility oh yes but um there's that sense of possibility with the opening of those stories Mm. of like something's happened and now it's going to open up the world of the people now if you was let at last (laughs) yes exactly um they're going to finally get married um (laughs) but i think yeah i think most of the time um i don't I can't recall any books that I've I've read that have had desperately sad openings, and I feel like if they did have desperately sad openings, I probably wouldn't have felt compelled to keep reading. Okay, so yeah, so I say there's some that, op- that I read and that opened up. Some we talked about Lolly Willows and the Love Child with Open with the Death, and then there's some like The Secret Garden I, with the sort of quite dramatic deaths at the beginning. Oh yeah, I think maybe just the pathos of a of a child being orphaned do- is affecting to the reader even if we don't know who this child is we don't know who her mm-hmm. parents were we never really know who the parents were um yeah. and then something like in fact these are all children's books but little women and the rowy children i was thinking as well both open with you know a change in circumstances that's, that is sad for the family um, yeah it's interesting that a lot of victorian children's books do open like that and i wonder whether it's because victorian children were i suppose perhaps more desensitized to these things but also i think children kind of take things as they come more than adults do yeah but it's, it's also the way that you know rags to riches stories or cinderella stories have to work isn't it yeah. so um if they follow in that pattern they think the cinderella sort of thing can be you know miss pedigree Liz for a day by winifred watson or the making mm. of a marchioness by find just to minute like her again um <laughs> or you know the fairy stories more fairy story style um narrative they have to open in this destitute place and then everything gets better and better and then um i don't really know if it works the other way around i guess horror stories might do or is i guess yeah tragedies as i said that's the definition of tragedy isn't it things get worse and fall apart yeah. and things and in comedy things come together and get better so they both follow that trajectory and i don't really read tragic novels so i haven't really read yeah. <laughs> but even those i suppose don't really open with you know everyone singing and dancing and running around, it's more likely to be a neutral opening. Unless it's one of those, yeah. like, um, the gift of the Magi type things where, you know, it starts with a big, exciting opportunity opening. The family wins a lottery or something and then, you know, discover that money corrupts and everything goes wrong type of narrative. I can't think of a proper name for that. but um, <laughs> <laughs> or Unless it is just tragedy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose if, if you sort of open up the novel with something really happy, then you've got nowhere to go, have you? Hmm. Apart from apart from down, so I guess starting a, a book with something negative or sad is it opens you up emotionally to the story, but also then gives the opportunity for things to be resolved, um, and allows for positivity to happen afterwards. And this, I guess, there's a feeling that if something opens up happily, that the you already have a sense of resolution, or they have a sense of resolution at least. So there's nothing. It has to be a very good novelist to give you anything to keep reading for. Yeah. Because there isn't anything that the characters want, or there isn't, you know, there isn't a something pulling the narrative forward. Everyone's just very content already. Yeah. 
Um, the only sort of difference and so I can think, or a distinction to that I can think was Greenery Street, which so often comes up as, as the, um, <laughs> by Dennis McHale, so often comes up as the exception to rules, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, where they're happy at the beginning and they're happy throughout, essentially, with minor household troubles. But I guess there are some novels, including, in fact, the ones we'll talk about later, um, that open with marriage, as opposed yeah. to ending with marriage. Um, although not necessarily, we'll talk about it later, but yes, one of these opens with an unhappy marriage and one of these opens with a happy marriage, so it's a bit, yeah. a bit different. I think often it's sort of detective novels and, and ghost stories and things like that that open with, with the, the sad openings. Well, not necessarily sad, but sort of dramatic and gloomy and disturbing in some way. Mm. And that's, that's up the expectation. But I guess other types of novels wouldn't so much. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I'm just trying, I can't think of, I mean, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, that's got a sad opening because it starts with a murder, but. It's it, it again. It's, it's it's a mystery novel, so you kind of expect that to happen. And um, perhaps some of Margaret Atwood's novels end quite on a depressing a start on a depressing note. Um, but then I don't feel they're particularly uplifting. So maybe it's I don't know. I can't really think of a. I guess it, you can't give it a pattern, can you? There's not a. You can't say all books that start like this finish like this. It's just yeah, yeah. And I think most literary fiction probably doesn't open happily or sadly or end happily or sadly it just sort of gives you tells you life yeah. as it is well I guess that's the aim um, yeah the other things I thought of were things like Frankenstein that open with like a big you know new scientific discovery and then and then everything goes that a bit haywire well. although that's a little ruined by the by the framing devices plural to the novel where it's you know <laughs> relate to someone in a letter whilst he's on a ship where he heard it from a friend who, you know, his gardener told him whilst he was, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I exaggerate, but, you know, the Victorian framing device I find ex- almost invariably tedious. <laughs> yes, it is quite dull. Yeah. Um, so I guess there's, yeah, if, if, if happiness is a way of giving the beginning of a novel possibility, um, mm. I guess it's, yeah, both, both happy and sad and the openings can, in their own ways, um, propel narrative and give it a reason for keeping going. But maybe it's more often sad openings that do that because it's, you know, the character is alone or the character is poor or the character, um, doesn't, yeah, is, faces a mystery. Um, so those are the things that need resolution in some kind. Whereas yeah. maybe there are fewer things that propel a narrative that are considered happy. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Cause hmm. I think. Yeah, you know, starting a book is such a hard thing to do and get right and set the tone right and set the expectations right. And I think I would say perhaps more elegiac openings rather than sad openings tend to be that more sort of depressing tone um, rather than something. Because I don't think it's possible to make a reader feel truly sad at the beginning of a book before they get to know the characters. Yeah. Um, I think... Is there anything about comic novels? The novels are just like entirely comic and not, you know, getting worse or mm. whatever. That um, like PG Woodhouse or something. Do they yeah. start happy? Is it, is that happiness or is it just humour? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think they're often there's often an element of tragedy to those sorts of books, but they're kind of humorous tragedies, like Nancy Mitford books and things like that. They often start with something te- like something terrible's happened or a conflict is happening. Um, but that's the kind of the thrust of the plot, isn't it? That's true. It's a lot to do with tone, isn't it? And I think there is yeah. a distinction, as we talked about already, about whether it's the reader or the characters. Because as you say, like, um, or something like, um, 
Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Tool is, is you know this anti-hero who's constantly things are going wrong for him and um and to him he's probably quite unhappy most of the time but to the reader <laughs> it's a happy book because it's funny <laughs> I guess yeah um Don Quixote probably quite similar although he's quite happy in general isn't he even if he's yeah. making a mess of everything um so there's all sorts I guess yeah maybe the comic novel is exempt from this sort of dichotomy because <laughs> If it's a truly comic novel, then you probably shouldn't be sad at, at what's happening. <laughs> no. Oh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is a tricky one. Plenty of stunters. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, I thought, oh, yeah, there, there must be loads of books that have really sad openings. But there's lots of books that have dramatic openings or things that are sad or thoughtful or nostalgic, perhaps, in a way. But, I, you know, it's I think it's quite a, it's a hard thing to make people feel truly sad. Yeah. Um, people. Which is impressive when people manage to do it in a short story or something because yeah. you can see at a novel you've been with the characters for so long that you, you care what happens about them. And even if you know which way it's probably going, then um, it'll still be upsetting. Whereas I always think, I mean, I always come back to Catherine Mansfield when short stories are raised. So something like, um, what's her name? Miss Braille? Do you know that one? Yeah. Yeah, well, this old lady who's basically abandoned by everyone and is very pleased about her, the fox fur that she's wearing, and then over here someone mocking it. Um, that whole thing's quite sad, and it's only about, you know, six or seven pages, I think, and yet more moving than many, um, than many novels I've read. So maybe it's sort of that sort of story where you're sort of thrown in in media res, then that makes yeah. a different difference. Um, I guess I guess the main problem, as we've been circling, is that happiness and sadness are really conclusions in a way. They're yeah. like Particularly, I mean, not in real life, but in a, in a novel, to call it happy or sad is to suggest what it is cumulated in. What what? Yeah, you're you're waiting for a conclusion in a novel in the way that real life does not work. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, the happiness or sadness of a book is is how you leave it. Yes, very much so. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Well, Would you be more likely to read a book with a happy or a sad ending then? That's the question. Yeah. Even. Um, hmm. It's, see, if I didn't know anything about the ending and I didn't know where it was going and I just had to pick based on, you know, opening paragraphs or something. Um, hmm. I can go back because I can't decide. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would probably go with a happy opening because then I would um, I would think it's more intriguing because I'd be like, oh, where's it going to go from here? See, I was going to give the exact same reasoning for the other option. Because oh. <laughs> I think if it's sad, then maybe things will get better. Whereas if it's if it's happy, the only way is down. <laughs> well, yeah, true. Um, I think I might be more intrigued by a sad opening as long as um, there was a ray of hope in it. <laughs> um, which is sort of cheating. But I'm going to pick sad openings. And yes, was not expecting to find that such a difficult topic <laughs> as yeah, it turned it really out to has. be. Yeah. Um, yeah, listener, we'd love to know your, your thoughts. Or indeed, Kirsty, if you're listening, <laughs> um, what did you have in mind and what have you missed? <laughs> yeah, we probably missed all sorts of things there. Yeah. Uh, great. Okay. Um, in the second half of the episode, we're looking at two novels by Emily Eden, which are The Semi-Attached Couple and The Semi-Detached House. <laughs> um, often published together. I think we're both reading copies where they're published together. Yeah. But, um, not related to each other. Um, which is fun to see that even in the 
um, mid-Victorian period, a publisher was jumping on a marketing opportunity. <laughs> saying, this one sold well, let's call the other one something similar. Um, do you have any preferences for which one you introduce us to, Rachel? No, you choose. Um, okay, I'll go for the semi-detached house. So if you want to go first. Okay, so the semi-attached couple is um, about, I can't remember any names. Um, uh, I wrote some down. Oh, Helen and Lord Cheviot. <laughs> Helen and Lord Cheviot, who get married, um, but they're, they're both very young, and Helen isn't sure she wants to get married. She's very attached to her family. Um, and it's basically how they, they have a pretty disastrous first year of marriage as they try and neither of them are very good at communicating with each other or explaining how they feel, um, and it all goes very wrong. And um, Helen has to sort of, they both have to work out basically how to be a husband and wife and how to live happily together. So at first it looks like it's going to be a disaster. And then you see how it develops over time. Yeah. Um, And the semi-detached house, um, Blanche, I believe is the main character. um, And she has to move to this horror of horrors, semi-detached house, (laughs) um, where uh, because her husband is away in the navy, navy, yes, or at yeah. least on a on a ship, at least on a ship, yeah. Um, and she is a bit worried about who will end up being in the place next door to her, but it turns out it's her lovely motherly type called Mrs. Hopkinson and her two twenty-something um, daughters. Again, um, Blanche is very young, but this marriage is a very happy one, so it starts off more happily, albeit the separation is causing some angst, um, and. The, the plot is mostly around what happens to those two daughters next door, how Blanche copes with being on her own, and you know, how an objectionable baroness <laughs> factors into, into play. Um, I read both of these in quick succession, just now, although I've had them on my shelf since ooh, the 19th of November 2009, apparently. So there you go, it's taken me eight years to read them, <laughs> but I did it. Um, how about you? What did you just read them or have you had them for a while i I just bought them about a couple of months ago and i read the first one straight away semi-attached couple and then i just read the semi-detached house when we decided we were going to do it for this and i originally thought that they were you know a sequel a sequel kind of but they're not they're completely separate and i think they were written a little bit apart from each other um and i just found them really fascinating and i think it's quite interesting because they seem on the surface to be quite frothy sort of social comedies but actually both of them are very rooted in their day so the semi-attached couple has this random bit towards the end where they're all involved in an election and it's very interesting because it's just before the um electoral reform in the 1930s so it's all about rotten boroughs and people being able to manipulate the voting um and then the second one you've got the issue of um the kind of I suppose the financial crisis it reminded me a little bit of the way we live now with that kind of Melmot type character the Baron he's he's obviously involved in financial misdemeanors somewhere and that idea of living beyond your means and and everything being a bit fraudulent and social climbing um so even though they appear like they're just very nice kind of romantic stories there is a lot to to think about that Victorian society in them. There's also quite a lot of um, you know racism, but yes, we'll come on to that in a, in a bit. I think, <laughs> I think I think it is, it is interesting uh, publication history. As you say, they were written 
quite a way apart. So the semi-attached couple was written in the 1830s, and the semi-detached house was written in the 1860s, but they were both published in the 1860s. So when the semi-detached house was a success, um, she, she sort of dug around in a drawer, thought, oh, I'm going this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and those are the only two novels she wrote, although she or at least had published, although yeah. she did um, write some travel writing, I think. Yes. Um, but yes, it is, it's interesting that they uh, have been put together. It's because they, in some ways, to me, seemed quite different in terms of um, style, I guess. I, lo- I really loved them. I, and I'm, yeah, I'm really pleased we got the opportunity to, to read them for this. But there is, seems to me a very distinct um, maturing in her writing between the two. Yes. Uh, and The Same Attached Couple is wonderful, very, very witty, but very obviously a Jane Austen ripoff. <laughs> I don't know if you felt that as well. Yeah, no, it was very much. Yeah, I mean, to the extent of, you know, a character says how much she likes Jane Austen and someone else is compared to Pride and Prejudice at some point. But, um, it it was really f- fun because of that, but also highlighted to me the ways in which Jane Austen is better than her. <laughs> 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 um, because you've got things like, Mrs. Douglas is a wonderful character. She's the Um, mother of two daughters whose names I can't remember um, who who Eliza is one of them actually isn't it yeah Um, and yeah another one who um, are not married they're sort of husband hunting or they're not husband hunting because they're they're pretty you know naive about the world but she's husband hunting for them Um, she's a very unattractive woman inside and out and she's constantly belittling others she criticizes everyone and everything and it's very funny and I loved the, you know, she's got the same sort of balance to her sentences that Jane Austen has, and the same, you know, way of playing with with witty dialogue. But I, something I thought, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, is that um, in Jane Austen you always know whether the characters are putting on a front or if they actually are like that. So you've got like the sister-in-law in Sense of Sensibility who is unpleasant and selfish, but you know that she's cunning as well she's not yeah. meaning everything she's saying versus someone like mrs elton in emma or you know the dippy aunt in mansfield park who say ridiculous things but but mean them and that's part of the humor and i always thought mrs yeah. douglas i i didn't know whether she was deliberately finding fault with everyone because she was just you know liked criticizing people or if she genuinely believed everything she was saying yeah, there was a kind of a, a few of the characters. I mean, the characterization is is fairly thin, to be honest. Mm. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I see what you mean. You can't. There's not really a, I suppose, a possibility to work out why people are behaving in the way that they do. So while in semi-detached couple, there is that interesting notion of, you know, why can't these two understand each other and why can't they talk to each other we never really dig beneath the surface obviously we know that Helen's very attached to her family and that's you know she's Mm -hmm. not used to having to explain herself but that marriage isn't really explored in any depth and perhaps that's because Emily Eden never married herself but um it's interesting that that you never really see much of those two together you often see the familial relationships rather than the two of them together um working out their issues but I did like that sorry to interrupt but um I just say I did like that as a sort of motif of what happens if somebody who's very close with their family and their brothers and sisters and that's very very important to them marry someone who doesn't have any brothers and sisters and doesn't particularly like his family yes. um because yeah, I have not seen that discussed in literature before but it must be really you know 
cause us some difficulties if if one half of a couple doesn't understand the most important thing to the other. Yeah, and I think that's there's also an element there of of youth, and it's it really brought it home to me actually reading both of these books how young Victorian women were expected to be when they got yes, married, and yeah. you think that they're just children, they are children, and they're playing at house, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and to think that a lot of these women were having children and yeah. you know, bringing up families and running houses when they didn't even know themselves or what they wanted. And, and I'm sure there's somebody in that who becomes a grandmother at 32 or something. Yeah, there is. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And she's really proud of it as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's absurd. I mean, that's, I'm 32. Like, <laughs> I know. It's like, goodness, I haven't even started. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and I... I think my other thing that sort of sprang out by comparison with Jane Austen is the sort of curious lack of focus in the, you, you, the way you've described it, the way we, we've described it is that Helen and Lord Cheviot are the, are the main thrust of the novel, but it starts with these young Douglas girls and we come back to them quite often, one of whom moves in with Helen for a while, um, and you never quite know which of them is the main focus of the novel, and something like you know, Pride and Prejudice, we have side stories about Charlotte Lucas or, you know, when a number of people, but we, we know from the outset that Lizzie is the most important one and the Bennett sisters are like the next tier. Yeah. And the, um, and the, the sort of hierarchical structure of, of character importance and, you know, fo- focal points is all there. Whereas this one, I was like, I don't know who, who I'm supposed to be following. And by the end, it is, it does sort of seem to be the Cheviots. Cheviots? Don't know. Yeah. Um, but. <laughs> But it didn't feel particularly um, like that throughout. Did you feel that as well? Yeah, there was a kind of, we were sort of interested in everybody, weren't we? I didn't feel like Helen, I didn't feel like the semi-attached couple were the centre of the book, certainly not. And I think you can tell very much that it's her first novel because you do have that sort of tacked on bits in roughly halfway through where we have all of the election and everything like that and it does mm. feel a little bit like an afterthought and she was like oh do you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna put this in here um because that makes it really current um yes. and it, it just feels a bit like really did we is this really necessary and you're going um, to a hot air balloon don't they yeah it's all very odd somewhat bizarrely <laughs> um so it doesn't even though it kind of it doesn't put you off the book it's still incredibly no. enjoyable to read it is a little bit like right okay what was her plan with this book it doesn't really seem to be an awful lot of, of forethought perhaps about where the plot's going whereas the second semi-detached house it feels very well constructed from beginning to end and even though it, it relies a lot on uh, remarkable coincidences um <laughs> uh, in the terms of who ends up living next door to each yes. other um won't say any more than that it's um it it kind of works and you've got these kind of awkward this this character of the baron and the baroness who are um they're jewish which is i find i found that quite uncomfortable the fact that i I feel like in every 19th century novel where there's an unscrupulous financier they're always jewish um yes it's um, yes it was definitely well it was at times hard to work out whether it was anti-semitic or it was just these characters were unpleasant and are jewish but i think possibly more the former yeah, because I thought, well, did they have to be Jewish? And the answer was no, they didn't have no. to be Jewish. So they've obviously chosen to make them Jewish. Um, and it was that was really interesting how that was woven throughout. So you were constantly aware that that there was something going on with them and the Baroness and her her attempt to kind of worm her way into the family and her snobbery. I loved 
the scene at the beginning when the Baroness doesn't know that um, their next door neighbour is Lady yes. Chester yeah. and Lady Chester is in the room and she's really rude to Lady Chester because she's like, well, you know, what are you doing butting in on the conversation? And then later on, she's like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that was her and tries to backtrack. And it was it's very funny, those kind of yeah. observations. And there was a, similarly, I think maybe after that, she when she didn't realise that these neighbours, the Hopkinsons, were people worth bothering with. Yeah. She just sent them a letter saying that she was having a party and they could observe it from the upper windows if yeah. they wanted to. It's wonderful. It's really funny, and I think she's so good at that criticisms, that social criticism, and it's not heavy-handed. It's it's subtle. It's funny, but at the same time, it's it's a very interesting view of 19th century society, I suppose, where you do have this rising middle class and people trying to get above their station, as it were, and the nouveau riche um, and the aristocracy. And it's it's kind of like a it's a less polished Jane Austen, certainly, but it's a, I think it's a more socially aware and perhaps politically aware Jane Austen that's trying. They're novels that are trying to say something about the world in which she lives whereas I don't feel like Austen's novels are necessarily overtly trying to say something and that perhaps might be because Emily Eden was part of a political family. Yes in fact the introduction to the Virago edition that I've got which um, is by Valerie Grosvenor Meyer I don't know who she is but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she's probably not working class with that name <laughs> um, so therefore may understand um, the, she writes that yeah Emily Eden indeed was the honourable Emily Eden mm. and so um, perhaps had a greater awareness of the nuances between various levels of the upper classes and you know the rising up middle classes than Jane Austen might have done yeah. um, because there is a lot of nuance in these discussions um, and, and in fact one of the things she points out, I can't remember which book it is in but there's one character who is you know, irreproachably upper class, who does describe his wife as his old woman and talks about his kids, which, if you're writing a historical novel now, you wouldn't dream of fitting in, or at least I yeah. didn't, for, you know, a posh person in 1830s, but obviously they, they, some people did say those sort of things. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you see that a lot in uh, Nancy Mitford novels. It was clearly a fashion in the 1930s for posh people to try and sound less posh because they all took G's off the end of words and things. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting, um, really interesting set of novels that do provide a different perspective on 19th century life. And I can't think for the life of me why these books aren't more widely read or considered to be more classic than they are because... It's always just Jane Austen and the Brontes that you're encouraged to read mm, for this mm. for this kind of maybe not the Brontes but in in terms of like light fun social commentary romance you know why aren't they on the list I can't yeah it's true she's not even really like second tier Fanny Burney really I mean see, they've apparently they've been in print ever since they were published although I don't know if they're in print now the introduction in 1979 says they've been in print ever since they were published but. Um, no, I mean, I don't think they are, because certainly I've never been able to buy it new in a shop. I've only ever seen it used. Uh, and I do wonder why they're not considered worthy of study, because I think there is a lot to say in these yeah. books about what life was like for people. And her position as a perhaps more privileged person, I mean, her great or great nephew or nephew was Sir Anthony Eden, he was the Prime Minister, Um there is that sense that she's mixing in in a world where she's got a lot of insight into current affairs, into social class, into the changes of society, perhaps in a, in, in a more broad and broadened way than, than Jane Austen would have done, considering that she had a more rural life. 
Yeah, I mean, and indeed for study and but for um, adaptation, I think they well, yes, you know, with a bit of you know structural ironing out, I think they'd be great for a little BBC mini series. Um, yeah, I think they'd be they'd be fantastically dramatised, and I have to say, very much the second the semi detached house, it did remind me a lot of Anthony Trollope. Hmm. Hmm. It's certainly they certainly felt very much of of their time in the sense of you could see that one was much more influenced by you know 1850s 1860s that mm. sort of um i guess but just the writing style really had become much more like trollope than jane austen by then yeah um, and i really must um state uh, again how funny these books are and, and you know she may not be perfect in terms of um, structure overall, but the, her dialogue and her humorous characters are wonderful. There's, there's one in the semi-attached couple whose name I can't remember, who um, must always be the close personal friend of anyone he's mentioned, and, and must always have known everything before anyone else does. And so you see, she gets in these conversational um, sort of knots, trying to follow up what people are saying by, you know, re- revising her own story so it sounds like she knew everything, even when a few sentences ago it was clear that she didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Um, and she handles that brilliantly. Um, and, yeah, in the the narrative voice, particularly in the semi-detached house, I think, is is very funny, the way she talks about... Um, she, you know, the way she uh, points out the character's flaws in, th- in the narrative, or, you know, their foibles, perhaps more to the point... I loved everything about Mrs. Douglas being scared of burglars. Yeah. Um, and how you know thrilled she is when it turns out she's not being burgled. She's actually being called upon to be a sort of midwife, I guess, for that person next door. And um, yeah, she just is very witty about that. And in fact, talking of that, was I just did I just miss the fact that this character was pregnant? Because <laughs> when she gave birth, I didn't, I didn't even realise she was pregnant. <laughs> Oh no, it was mentioned quite a lot beforehand. Was it? It was very vague and uh, like you know the fact that she's not strong, and then you know she's in a, an interesting condition. They say they never actually mention pregnancy. Oh, there you go. That's it. I, I, I was very you know Victorian and naive. <laughs> but you know, again, when she has this baby, it's like you know she's a child with a doll. It's just like, well, I can't believe so many people were put in this p- position of responsibility, but then I suppose they didn't actually look after their own children, so. <laughs> well, true. And we've not talked about, um, is he a brother-in-law to them, sort of Willis? Yes, he's a hilarious character. He's um, still supposedly mourning a wife he didn't love from three years before. He's the stepdaughter of, I, I kind of got the idea that it must have been her husband's, child and not her yes it's a bit tenuous relationship isn't it yeah when he died she kept in contact with her and then she's married this willis who and then she dies and he's got this sickly sickly son that lives with the hutchinsons and he's always everything is negative hopkinsons thank you (laughs) everything is miserable everything's a disaster he walks around he's still wearing deep mourning after three years and he thinks that everything's going to go wrong all the time and then his his tr- reluctant transformation is quite funny to see. It's very witty um, and quite sweet. Um, and the Baroness's niece is also wonderful. She's yes, um, very. She you know makes up poetry and constantly quotes obscure verse to people. Well, not even that obscure, but quotes verse to people who don't understand that she's quoting. So just think she's saying odd things. One of my favourite moments is when she 
describes herself as aesthetic to, I think it's Mrs. Um, Hopkinson, who says, well, I don't know what that word means, but if you'd said asthmatic, I'd have known exactly what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and yeah, I think this, that she, particularly in that second novel, uh, shows a great ability to um, skewer people without being too over the top. I mean, they are they are slightly over the top, but, yeah. you know, believable in believable traits, even if not believable composites, I guess. Um, and she has great fun, but it's 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 also extremely fun to read. You don't just get sick of these people who are obviously would be very irritating to spend time with, <laughs> but are extremely amusing to read about. Yeah. And equally, or perhaps more um, impressively, she's very good at making nice characters in that novel. Yeah. Perhaps more so in the first one, where Helen is supposed to be this nice person, and she she's not offensive, but you don't particularly. Well, I didn't particularly warm to her. Um, whereas the whole Hopkinson family, are, you know, just lovely. Yeah, they are, and they're, you know, it's lovely to see a family that's happy in literature and who loves each other and supports each other, and um, it's just, yeah, it's one of those those books. Well, in fact, both of them really are those books that you read it and you just think, oh, well, you know, it's so lovely and it's and it is comforting, and you read the whole thing and you know it's going to have a happy ending, and it does, and it just it does everything it needs to do, really. In fact, she does something that Jane Austen doesn't do with the, you know, gives us a happy family, gives us a, yeah. a good, a good father and a good mother and you know, yeah. all these things that we, and, and they're not boring because, you know, so often, you know, happy family, every, every happy family is like any other happy family is, you know, someone Tol- said Tolstoy. Anna Karenina or something. Yeah, yes. it's, it's in Tolstoy, yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, yeah, and it's also, she actually shows marriage after the wedding. Such a good point because they both basically begin with marriage as opposed to, yeah, ending with marriage. Um, and I don't know how common that was in the 1830s or even indeed the 1860s, but it's certainly bucking the trend of you know, 1800, 1810. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely to actually see, right, okay, to to look at novelists who certainly in, in the in semi-attached couple looks at the fact that marriages don't always start out happily. And also, here's the issue when people get married after having met each other three times in a ballroom. You know, you don't really mm-hmm. know the other person. You, nobody's ever told you. Like, uh, I mean, when her sister comes and she's like, well, no one's told me what's going to happen or what I should do. And it's, you know, that idea of one day you're just a child in the nursery and the next day after having met a nice man three times and someone's bought you some new clothes, here you go, you're going to get married and now you're going to go and live with this person and you've just got to make the best of it. And it's kind of barbaric, really. Yeah, uh, and, and, and she does, albeit comically, does show that, this, this, yeah. particularly in the semi-attached couple where they're, they're unhappy and they're not communicating properly at all. So he's desperately in love with her. She sort of just a confused child basically yeah um and he can't just you can't communicate this properly with her because he's always talking in this sort of formal um you must do me the honor of supposing blah 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 sort of thing um and she she again does a really good job of showing how through his hurt pride and his you know upset love is that he's just adding to that confusion um um, I mean, yeah, the plot is not entirely believable. The reconciliation is rather <laughs> ham-fisted. But, yeah. um, but, you know, nice as well. I'm glad it happened. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. It's just, it's, I mean, she's, she's, it's like the first novel feels like she had a clutch of good ideas, but she didn't really know how much to do with them. Whereas the second one feels much more polished. Yeah. And thoughtful. But I think both of them are really successful novels in the sense that they're entertaining, 
they you care about the characters and there's also some a deeper social message there really I found really, really brilliantly written. I'm quite sad yeah. that she didn't write any more. Um, and I me too. I feel like she would have just blossomed even more if she'd kept going. Yeah, and so the thing she, other things she did write are called Portraits of the People and Princes of India. The People yes. and Princes. <laughs> um, and Up the Country. I didn't know what Up the Country is. Yeah, so that's a collection of her travel writing. So she was a travel writer. She travelled a lot around India and the colonies in general, I think. So I think that's where... She's been. She's sort of had some interest from feminist critics um, uh, from her travel writing perspective, but no one's written anything about her books. She's off the radar. I know. I'm feeling like maybe I should do something for my masters. You should. (laughs) I do worry that based on on hints in these novels that those travel that travel writing might be racist. Yes. Um, I don't know how comfortable I'd be reading that. I know I should say that, yeah, the, the N-word does appear in one of these novels, I forget which, which is yeah. unfortunate, um, to say the least. But, but um, you know, it's she's a woman of her time. Yes, I don't think she's known to be worse than anyone else at the time. Yeah. Um, yes, and we could, we, yes, there's, there's a whole other discussion to be had there. But yes, I think possibly if it's just her walking around India and saying potentially insensitive things about Indian people, then I don't know if I would enjoy reading that. <laughs> well, I might uh, read it and let you know. Yeah, okay, give me a warning level <laughs> how much I'd be able to cope with it. Um, but, yeah, um, so, let's say, but Virago published this one in the 70s. In fact, I'm just going to look it up now and see when the last edition was was published so we can give full and accurate information, um, or indeed how easily available it is, because I think... Many of our listeners would very much enjoy this, and it, uh, someone recommended it to me years ago. So it's obviously once people read it, they do pass on, but it's not just not that many people reading it. Well, you can get it for free on Kindle, apparently, or no, one pound eighty nine on Kindle. A bargain. <laughs> yeah, or even less, there seventy six pence. But um, if you want a print copy, oh, there are a few available from a pound or two. But uh, definitely, it's not in print, is it? But it is not in print, um, unless you can't, you know, print on demand. But you know, I, don't. I would have thought this would be a perfect Persephone, really. It would actually, because they, they haven't done a huge number of Victorian ones, but certainly some. I know they don't. They try not to do too many that Baraco have done before. But um, I've just seen there is an audio download. That must be. That might be quite fun. Yeah, I wonder who reads it. Um, Peter Joyce, whoever Peter Joyce might be. Oh. So much Googling. Who is Peter Joyce? <laughs> so I do all the work for you guys. He's a <laughs> contemporary English painter. I feel like that's probably not the same Peter Joyce. No. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Peter Joyce is not famous, but thank you for reading um, these books, Peter. Um, now that I'm on my audio book binge, perhaps <laughs> in, a, in a few months when I've forgotten some of the more, some more details from this. So, well, <laughs> I'm always slightly uncomfortable by men reading women because... They quite often just put on a silly voice. Oh, really? I mean, I just don't really listen to them at all. So, yeah, it's it's um not always like the better narrators don't, but sometimes they just you know, go all high pitched in a way that sounds like a high pitched man, not like <laughs> a woman, because women do not sound like high pitched men. No. <laughs> um, so I prefer it when they just sort of do their own voice or do a voice, but not trying to sound in commas, like a woman. Yes. Um, who knows, maybe I'm doing Peter Joyce in Injustice. <laughs> if anyone <laughs> listens to it, let us know how, how Pete does. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, anything else you wanted to say about these books? Um, I just th- I think that they're 
they're little masterpieces and I would really recommend anybody who's likes Jane Austen to, to really give them a go because they are a real lost treasure, I think. Yeah, it did feel when I was reading reading them, particularly the first one, like, oh, if you have, have thought, I love Jane Austen, it's a shame she didn't write more. <laughs> yeah. Then, then I think you'll, yeah, you'll love the semi-detached couple. And if, you, yeah, and as is becoming, I think, clear, I think the semi-detached house is better. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's just a real, a real treat. And hopefully somebody will reprint her, um, or if not those Kindle editions are available but um it, it does seem shameful that she's fallen out of print when she's such an adept and funny writer and they're f- finding funny books that i was really laughing out loud and reading lines out to people from this there's <laughs> a great bit where someone um talks about how much she hates charades that i think you know if you're going home for christmas and you <laughs> you want to <laughs> stop people getting you to join in with them then it's a great thing to print out and pass around i love charades so you know <laughs> i'm fine but <laughs> um, yeah it's just, yeah, extremely funny. Um, but my teal book's decision is that I prefer the semi-detached house. Yeah, I would have to be the same. It's just, it's just a bit, I just, it's just a more rounded book, I think. Yeah, much shorter as well, I think. Yeah. Um, my, the same length in, in the copy I have, but the font's about twice the size. So I'm not sure what the decision making was there <laughs> with Rago. <Rocco. laughs> they obviously decided they had to be the same number of pages each. <laughs> I don't know. Odd. Uh, yeah. Great. Um, thank you for, well, I think, I can't remember which I was suggested it, but thank you for reading it, the first one, so that I, I was reminded that it had been on my shelf for so many, so many years. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm just glad that I've discovered it now. It's going to be a favourite yeah. I go back to. Oh, I'll definitely reread it, yeah. Particularly yeah. the second one. Mm. Um, great. So, in the next episode, we'll be doing uh, The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins versus Possession by A.S. Byatt. Yes. Um, so, sort of Victorian versus fake Victorian. Yeah. Um, it should be fun. Um, and I've got some reading to do. <laughs> yeah, I know, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yes, do email simonthomasoxford at gmail.com if you have any questions you'd like me or Rachel to answer. You can specify one of us if you like, or either or both. Um, and all the books and authors that we've mentioned today will be listed at stuckinabook.com. Um, great. Thanks okay. for listening, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.